Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another action-packed episode of Morning Coffee. Back after a long uh, hiatus, and sorry about that, it was not intentional. Um, things just, well, life just got in the way. We've had an insanely busy uh, month or so, as is always the way around uh, Big Punch Towers. I always find myself kind of apologising for uh, letting things slide, but uh, in the past four weeks we've done three three conventions. We did uh, London MCM down at the Excel Centre, we did uh, Thought Bubble up in Leagues, and we did, then we had a week off where we did a stock check, a long overdue stock check, and uh, yeah, and then we've just this weekend done MCM Birmingham. So all our kind of prime podcast recording time has been taken up by us kind of traveling around the country going to various installments uh, various events and um yeah and midweek is also challenging because uh yeah you know we're we're working on bpm and the like not to mention uh, the day jobs so mm, it's good to be back anyway and i'm installed up in the big punch studio looking out over the sea of trees which live behind our house and uh kind of weirdly just about at eye level with a a running track, a footpath, if you will. It's like a, a bank going up behind the hill. And the weirdest thing is that, yeah, we're, the top floor of our house is pretty much, yeah, absolutely parallel with that. So, yeah, so I, I get to stare at, at joggers, which is, of course, how I entertain myself most cold weekend mornings. Mm. So what's been going down? Well, like I mentioned, it's been convention season, and uh, we're finally we're finally free. It is uh, the la- the last show of the year has now been and gone, and we decided to divide the labour for MCM Birmingham. So Lucy and I did yesterday, and Nick and Ali are doing today, which is great because we all had some work to be getting on with, and it means Nick and Ali could be cracking on with that yesterday, and uh, and we'll return the favour and cook tea for them. Today they made a oh god what did they even call it it was like now Nick had a fancy name for it and I can't think what it was it was essentially like carbonara pasta sauce oh there goes a jogger good on you mate keep going uh yeah carbonara like pasta sauce and then but instead of pasta it was shredded courgette which is you know pretty pretty classy I think you'll agree and uh uh. Uh, yeah, and then just the biggest strudel you've ever seen in your life afterwards. So that was amazing. And uh, we were, Lucy and I were pretty knackered after the day. Uh, MCM Birmingham, I mean, I guess I should probably do like a kind of con review and comparison. Uh, November, December is always a busy time of the year in terms of conventions. It's like the last push before everything quiets down for the Christmas season. Um, we always do the, the MCM London events. They are... Well, they're massive. I mean, I've often heard it said that they are the third biggest, collectively, they are the third biggest show in in the English-speaking world, which is a bit of a weird stat, but I think that's like San Diego, then New York, then MCM London. And I could be mistaken, but that's what I've been told. And I don't know, MCM is a weird one because we absolutely love it. I think, you know, full dis- full disclosure... We have an amazing time every time we go there. Um, I think our work is quite colourful. I think it resonates with the crowd at those events. I think, 
we do well, even with people who may not traditionally be comic fans. I think uh, we maybe draw in some anime or manga fans. But um, it's not perfect. And I know a lot of people have take issue with MCM in general. Um, a biggest, A big criticism has always been it's not really about comics. That's always that's always uh, kind of held against it, and I think that's I think that's fair. Like it isn't really about comics, and maybe it shouldn't call itself a comic con, but I guess technically it doesn't. It's like one of those weird things where everyone calls it comic con. It's it's really just at the MCM Expo. It's everything. Um, I'm not entirely sure what MCM scans for. It might be movies, comics, and manga. I'm not sure, but it's essentially it's in the mold of like San Diego. It is a pop culture convention so very big on manga anime uh movies games uh that's quite important uh the cosplay side of things is massive and uh yeah and they have uh the comic village which is an area entirely populated by uk indie comic creators and yeah kind of, i guess like addressing that criticism sorry got my coffee hanks podcast name addressing that criticism yeah it isn't about comics, and maybe comics are like, uh, let's be charitable and say 20% of the show, maybe realistically it's more 10%, but, um, you know, when they get 200,000 odd people through the door, it does trickle down, and yeah, the majority of people are there to, uh, you know, maybe pick up stuff they recognise, like, uh, there's, a, there's a real kind of, they the comic village is often seen as like a an unknown quantity. It's like someone visiting the show uh, is maybe looking for scuff from the movies, scuff they follow on TV, and maybe the draw for them isn't like an indie comic made by a small team out of the UK. However, there is a trickle-down effect, and with that many people through the door, you can't help but feel the benefits. And also, MCM do what a lot of shows don't and give real... Uh, uh, kind of discounts to people in the comic village. They make it a lot easier to um, to exhibit. And yeah, I mean, you've got the hardship of having to get to London. You've got to get to the Excel Center. There's all the costs of travel, parking, pl- finding a place to stay. The food is ridiculously expensive. But it's the biggest show in the UK. And like, how can we not go? Uh, we, we do all right at it. And it's lovely. And the comic village really is a pretty good cross-section of people working in in the UK today. It's massive compared to other shows. Oh, maybe not Thought Bubble, but we'll get onto that. But um, yeah, we we love it. And we've been in the Comic Village for four or five years. I mean, Nick's been doing it for longer because he's, he's a haggard old man. Mm. But um, we've, we've tried it all now. We've been in the Comic Village a couple of years, a couple of shows running. We got uh, a booth so we uh, we forked out as a company and we kind of left for Comic Village and we got like a, uh, the first time we got like an island booth, it was kind of on a corner uh, and that was a bit of a mixed experience because we found ourselves slightly out of the Comic Village and maybe out of our comfort zone and people didn't really recognise us or know what we were doing there, certainly when we were surrounded more by dealers and and I guess kind of larger brands. Uh, the second time was much, much better, and we were like, in, kind of in the comic village, but to the side of it, against a, a rear wall, and we had a, a long horizontal booth, which gave us maybe like 12 foot, if not more, of table space. No, it must have been even more. 
I lose track of it anyway. But I, it was very, it was a very generous space, and uh, you know, we did well, and it was nice to present all our stock in that kind of in that way. And um, yeah, it's an expense, and it's not an expense we could do for every show, but it's not, it's something we might consider doing, you know, every now and then, really. Uh, and then at this MCM. Mm. The London one just gone a few weeks ago. We wanted to get back into the comic village. But, and I guess this is one of the negatives, the, um, <clears throat> pardon me, the, uh, every table in the comic village sold out in about five minutes. And that's, it's our failing, really, for not getting in there and booking earlier. But, I don't know, I guess you'd hope there'd be some kind of, you hope you'd be a bit more forgiving than the first five minutes. And uh, we were foolishly, we set alarms. We knew the booking went live at like a 5 p.m. or something like that. It was it was an odd time and we've missed it in the past because we were at work. And then this time we missed it because we were watching Hellboy, which is not a great excuse, I know. But I set alarms. I just, I heard my phone buzz in the distance. I didn't think anything of it. I ignored it. I carried on watching the film. We had a break, went to get a cup of tea, went to check the phone, looked at it. What was that alarm? Oh, heck. Booking went live an hour ago. Let's go book now. And we run and book. And of course, we're far too late. And we would have been far too late five minutes after the time it went live. We should have just been hovering over the keyboard. And I mean, that's got to say something to the popularity of MCM. Like people want to be there. And there's such a rush to get a table. Now, the alternative is something like Thought Bubble where it's curated, where you have to apply to get in, where you have to kind of prove your worth. And that's an odd system as well, because you can't help, people can't help but fall through the cracks in that system. And I know there's been odd situations where we've known people not get in and you think, well, why the hell not? You know, they are, we see them at every show, they are established names. Like why were they, what criteria do you have to meet to to get in? So I'm not saying that, going curated is the way forward but maybe just I don't know a bit more leniency I swear it's gotten worse over the years just for popularity is is through the roof people they're like gold dust people want them and and so because we couldn't get in we and frankly we didn't want to pay for a booth again because you know that was like a every now and then kind of expense we cannot we don't we're not made of booth money all the time and we thought well Let's go kind of somewhere in the middle. Let's get like a dealer table. And we, uh, so yeah, so we went for a dealer table, which is a bit more expensive than a comic village table, but not as bad as a booth. And we found ourselves out in the dealer area, but in the aisles. So that was an interesting experience in itself because we were away from our comics brothers and sisters. But because we weren't in the comic village, we decided to tailor our table a bit, like to think of a a different way of doing things. And we, uh, we're lucky in that we do have some products which uh, I guess have a slightly broader appeal than comics. Like we had our card game, Sandwich Maskers. So we decided to like really push two things at the show, Sandwich Maskers and Catamarang. Because Nick had recently got Catamarang back into print. He'd done uh, some beanie hacks. He'd done some mugs. He'd done like a whole host of merchandise. And the idea was that we would, yeah, just kind of push our more merchy things. And they did really well. 
we did really well. Um, it was it was a fun show, and it was nice to try something a little different. Now the question is, would we have done as well if we just led with our comics? And the answer is probably maybe not, because you're in a very different environment to the comic village. So I guess cons, you're more, you know, a, a con and a pro, not a con as a convention, uh, a con to being away from a dealer, uh, the comic village area, is that the average person kind of wandering down those aisles is not maybe looking for comics. They're looking for merchandise, because really merchandise is one of the the, the real winners at MCM. And uh, I guess a, a pro was we were actually attracted an audience we wouldn't normally have done. Like, people were coming down the aisles, they'd look at our stuff, they'd see Catamarang, which is instantly, like, that's like, people just love it, they go crazy for it. So Catamarang did really well. They saw Sandwich Maskers, and that did really well. But the thing that seemed to blow their mind was when we said we created this stuff. Because we were surrounded on either side by people selling... Um, I guess kind of just just random merchandise. They had no connection to it. They hadn't made it. There are people crafting stuff out there, but really a lot of people, it was just, oh, I've bought a job lot of Pikachu plushies on Amazon and now I'm selling them for a 1,500% markup. It was, it was crazy. So people in that area of the show just weren't used to meeting creators. Now, whereas in the comic village, you're surrounded by nothing but creators. People have to know to go in. But if people want to venture into the comic village, they're not going to be surprised to find people making their own stuff. Whereas we were kind of like a fish out of water, and it, and it surprised people. And we were lucky in that people just respond very well to Sandwich Maskers and Catamaran. And we did sell a few books. We had, we had like the books there as a token presence, but we were in a fortuitous position. Like, I'm not sure it would work for everyone, and I'm not sure, I'm like, I'm not sure it would have worked for us if we hadn't had the card game. But no, MCM is a, is a is a weird beast, and I enjoy it, and we do, we're fortunate enough in that we do seem to sell well. But I was going around talking to people, we we, we decided to, to do the show in shifts, which was a big improvement. So Nick and Ali would do an hour, then we would do an hour, and it allowed people to take a break, it allowed people to get some food, uh, and it allowed you to see the show a bit more. And we went around and... Uh, chatted to people in the comic village, going to see our friends, and they were saying, where the hell are you? And we're like, ah, well, we were hiding, we're under the giant seven painted on the wall, that was like the nearest guidance we could give people. And, um, and yeah, and uh, it, was, it was interesting to speak to people, because some people had had an absolutely amazing time. <clears throat> you know, there's people saying, best show ever, absolutely loved it, you know, I can't complain. Other people saying, it was it was really hard going, you know, but this was no interest. And it's so tough to gauge this, the psychology. You could drive yourself mad trying to psychoanalyze the buyer. But uh, it was weird. And I guess it's worth talking about some of the negatives. But we, we uh, Lucy and I, walked around the show. And we did a, a few orbits. I mean, like, you can't really walk around too much on a Saturday. It's just insane. There's so many people. But the Sunday and the Friday, there was a bit more time just to browse. And we found ourselves thinking, once you've done the first orbit, once you've been around once, what else was there to do? And we had to think about it. And we were like, if we weren't making comics, if we weren't selling stuff and coming to shows, would we come here? And I'm 
I can't, I'm not honestly sure if we would have done, because I think my, my interest has always been comics. I mean, surprise, surprise. So for me, if I went to a Comic-Con as a, just as a punter, not as a creator, my, the draw for me would be going to the comic village. And if I was going as a visitor, I might actually bring, you know, some proper spending money. I'd be like, well, I want to go and I want to grab great books. That would be my, my thing. But the rest of the show, and Comic Village is a tiny, tiny um, percentage of the total floor space of this event. The rest of the show was mostly just merchandise. And, I mean, here's a classic example. We were walking around, and uh, not too far from our table, I saw a stall selling Lego figurines. But they were all uh, custom Lego figurines of, like, superheroes. And I know Lego are doing tons of superhero figures at the moment, but these were very obscure custom-made ones, and it had a sign kind of saying, look, not official Lego, but it's completely compatible with Lego. You probably wouldn't know the difference if you looked at it. And I had a... (coughs) Pardon me. I had a closer look at them, and yeah, they were a little, ever so slightly rough around the edges, but they were really, you know, for what they were, I thought they were quite nice. Like, you could get a, uh, like a Mysterio Lego. You could get a, a Colossus Lego, and I was thinking, wow, this stuff, you know, Lego can't be putting this stuff out, that's really cool, and I remember thinking, oh, this is awesome, like, the spirit of crafting is alive and well, and someone has made all these custom Lego figurines, and now they're selling them, good on them, but then we walk on, and we go, like, you know, we carry on, and we go further down the row, and there is another table selling custom Lego figurines, and not just any custom Lego figurines, the exact same Wongs, even down to like the display case. So these are all knockoff custom pieces of heroes that wouldn't normally be made into Lego, but they've got Mysterios, they've got Colossuses, Colossi, and it's like, oh, good grief, like they've just bought a job lot, haven't they? They've just found some online retailer who was pumping out hundreds of these things, and they've just bought them, and they're just selling them. And it just it completely shattered any illusion I'd had of creativity. I mean, the guy, the guy, the guy at the table next to us, he was a lovely chap. He was very, very young. Uh, he, looked, he looked about fifteen, and I apologise if he's listening. The chances of that are very unlikely, and he's eighteen, but he looked young. And he was manning this store, selling nothing but Pokemon plush toys. And every now and then, I, like a, an adult, I assume, like his, he looked like his uncle or his older brother or something, would run up, kind of give him bark some instructions at him and say like no no do this differently do this differently pick up a load of stock dump a load of stock and then move off and we chatted to him the young lad uh and it sounded like he said something like they had five different stalls dotted around the show and they had the same kind of van load of stock but they were just selling it at these five different tables and i think they had like a family member on every table kind of manning it and then this one guy the mastermind kind of running around between them and he'd run and he'd run over and he'd go like oh like people are going crazy for pikachu in the south hall and he'd grab a whole handful of pikachu and run over and um pardon me and uh, drop it on a different table so it was really i mean that's pretty cynical right like that's not that's not just me and it was actually kind of sad to see the same stock on every table or the same stock on every other table, like, it, you know, it, it, it's like a Scooby-Doo background, it's like the same three scores just repeated over and over and over again, and then you get this odd little gem, and you see, you find something amazing. I mean, a positive for us was we met 
really nice couple of ladies who were championing this whole range of action figures about kind of like badass female characters. And it was very early stages of development. They were called, uh, oh, it's terrible. I have to put a link in the description, but I think they're called Valyrian Toys. And they were remarkable. And they only had some prototypes, but a few, and a few books, uh, kind of, again, prototypey kind of concept stuff and prints. But it was really cool. And that was really kind of inspiring to see because they were a real passion project. They were doing something different. I mean, I don't know many people, if any, working on action figures. And it looked like a really awesome kind of Saturday morning cartoon you'd not seen yet. And it's like, you, you see that and you think, oh, great, that is the absolute spark, the initial spark of creativity. And in a year's time, they're going to be even bigger. In two years' time, they could have taken over the world. And that was really cool. But going around the rest of the show, I mean, I, I don't want to be rude, but there's a lot of tat. A lot of tat. And it's it's weird to think that the show is getting bigger and bigger and bigger each year. But maybe like 80% of it is just retailers selling the same kind of stuff. And if you were very cynical and just wanted to make some money, I think you could do a lot worse than just find some kind of wholesaler online buy a ton of Pikachu key rings, buy a table and just sell them. Like, you don't have to have any connection to them. Like, people will just, like, lap them up. They'll go crazy for them. Hmm. Oh, time for a refill. Pardon me. Just grabbing my thermos. Do-do-do-do-do. Apologies. Oh, uh, just rearranging. Right, apologies and cheers, I guess. Mm. God, it burns. Uh, right, yeah, so it was hard not to... Hard not to get a little kind of disheartened about it. I mean, the creativity is still alive and well in the comics village. Don't get me wrong. But it's interesting to see that the majority of the show is not that. And then, of course, there's a stuff that, that really kind of grinds my gears, I guess, and um, it, it, it's been in the news a lot, I say the comic the comic news a lot the last year, and I know a lot of shows in America are cramping down on, uh, cramping? Groove. Clamping down on it, but um, it's like these, um, these print farms, and they come in like different flavours, and they're never in the comic village because, well, you know, that just wouldn't fly there, they're not, they're not artists at all, but you get the first kind of wave you seem to get are people just selling, uh, like, comic prints. So they just kind of, uh, it's like, here's a picture of Batman drawn by Jim Lee, and we're selling it on an A2 piece of paper. And that's, and, you know, they just have, they have these massive tables just laid out of pictures of Wolverine, Batman, Spider-Man, Superman. Oh, here's a movie poster from... X-Men, Days of Future Past, and people, and they make a killing, like they make an absolute killing, because the average person through the door has no idea that they probably don't have the licenses to sell this art, they snap it up, it's like £10 a print, £15 a print, and they just make an absolute killing. <clears throat> the second kind of class of art factory kind of print farm is um, the kind of filter effect, and 
I remember reading a lot of articles about this last year and, and on kind of like a, in American shows where they were having like a zero tolerance policy. But this is where you maybe have some artistic leaning, but you take uh, you take art by an established artist. So let's go with a gem, uh, the Jim Lee route again. You get a famous Jim Lee picture of Batman. You apply a filter, and the most popular one seems to be like this ink splatter filter. So you get like the basic outline, the basic kind of shape of this character, but done in like blotches, like almost like a Rorschach test. So flickers of red and black if it's a Deadpool one, and there's a lot of Deadpool ones. But the shape is unmistakably the original image. Like it's impossible to look at it and not go, oh, that's a Jim Lee. Oh, they've just taken a, a screen grab from Deadpool, the movie, or from Suicide Squad. And that's really, like, that's a bit dodgy as well. I I, I dare say that's pretty dodgy, actually, because it's like you... It, it, it's that thin veneer of creativity that makes it look like it's your own stuff. You can claim that, oh, yeah, this was my stuff. Like, I, I painted it in ink when it's really... It, it's just Photoshop manipulation. Now, I don't have any easy answers on the fan art route. I think I think fan art can be lovely, actually. I really do. And if you see an artist doing their unique take on an established character, that's marvellous. I really, really love that. The answer to the question I can't answer, and I, I, I'm not kind of, I guess, wise or audacious enough to, to, to put forward an answer here, is whether or not it's right for someone to sell a picture of Spider-Man when that belongs to Marvel. I mean, frankly, it's not hurting Marvel. So, but like, I don't know, if I found someone selling like a Jack Fortune picture, I think I'd be pretty miffed. You know, I mean, I guess that's the difference between being a bigger company and a smaller company. I don't know whether one is right and one is wrong. But yeah, I think this one is 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 pretty bad, just taking someone's artwork and, and putting a filter on it and passing it off as your own. And now I'm, I'm probably like the third class of of... I guess, print farm, which really, really kind of cheeses me off. And and there was a guy right on the end of our row at MCM doing this. And I did report him to, well, the, the kind of organisers. And, and their argument was, unless the owner of the original artwork comes forward and complains, they can't shut him down. But this guy, he was like a, he was like a kind of market kind of trader. He was, he was very much like, uh, 10 for a pound, 10 for a pound, get your, get your art, get your prints. You know, he's just a real kind of wise guy. And he was he was basically just selling Google images. Now, at least if you're, at least if you're, um, I don't know, selling like a Jim Lee art print, I don't know, maybe there's a degree of professionalism. It might be printed on like nice paper or something. It might look like an official poster. There's like a, you're never quite sure whether they have the license or not. This guy did not have the license, and the reason for that is that he was selling stuff off DeviantArt, which has got to be the lowest of the low. I mean, a classic example is there's a, I think it was a meme, it got it went viral, but I don't know the artist's name, but they did a really cool picture of all the Disney princesses, uh, traditionally shown as like, you know, perfect and beautiful and flawless, but all kind of gurning for the camera. It's like the second photo after they take their promo piece so it's a really amazing picture because we're all pulling funny faces we're all being human and silly and it's really nice and it and you know it, you see it everywhere because it was shared a lot this guy was just selling that on a print you know that's really 
that's really dodgy. It's like a... I always keep an eye out for... Um, as two of my friends, uh, Comfort and Adam, uh, Comfort Love and Adam Withers, who are a husband and and wife art team, uh, basically out of America, and um, I've done some work for them in the past. But they do um, amazing kind of um, fan art of uh, Marvel and DC characters, and I they almost worked for uh, Marvel, I think, once upon a time on New X Men and uh, oh no, Ultimate X Men, but. Um, their work is lovely, and I've seen their work uh, used to promote a local nightclub in my hometown. Like someone had just googled, you know, superheroes or something, and yeah, it's just the first the first thing that comes up on your on your hits. And I mean, that's that's probably the most cynical thing I can imagine. Just doing a Google search, no thought for licensing, no thought is if this is official artwork. But I mean, selling someone else's fan art. That's got to be the worst. The worst one is when they take like a, a screen grab or just a... Oh, man, it, it, it's dodgy. It's dodgy as hell. It's really bad. And uh, I don't know. I think maybe the impetus is on the shows to do a bit more about it, to actually kind of crack down on it. Because, I mean, you could always argue that like... I guess I guess the counter-argument is that it doesn't take anything away from you. Like if, if someone's coming to the show to buy a Spider-Man print, they're going to buy a Spider-Man print anyway. You know, if they were coming to the show to buy an indie comic, yeah, maybe they'd come and see you. I guess that's a counter-argument. But it does just seem so dishonest, so kind of, I don't know, like disingenuous really to be doing it. And I'm not an artist. I wish I could draw. But I I guess I, I write and I create stuff and I work with artists and, you know, a lot of kind of blood, sweat and tears goes into this stuff. And even if it's Marvel, you know, even if it's someone making fan art for DeviantArt, like, it just seems wrong to sell their work and take credit for it. I mean, a couple of our friends have have had their work quite aggressively plagiarised in the past, and uh, it never sits right. It doesn't sit right with anyone once they're kind of called out. But, I don't know, maybe it's part of pop culture growing up a bit where we need to address these things and assume that just because something's online it doesn't mean it's in the public domain anyway that's John getting off his soapbox but um yeah I guess it's turned into a great big MCM discussion which was not my intention a really weird thing about MCM is um probably the cosplay and I don't now and her disclaimer I do not mean that in a bad way because I love the cosplayers there's a lot of negativity I think and Sometimes it's, it's like, is a show about comics or is it more about people dressing up? And I'm, I'm, I agree, it's a problem. It, 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 it's a problem in the sense that I, I think someone described it best. It's like Comic Con or any convention is becoming like a carnival. It's becoming like the circus, and people go there to dress up, to take in the sykes, to be see and be seen, to wear their costumes, to have a big party. And it's very hard to run a bookshop in the middle of a carnival. And it always struck me as the best example of what's right and wrong with conventions at the moment. Because I love MCM because it's big, it's colourful, it's full of young people having an amazing time. But I guess the hard part is that I would say there's a shifting demographic where the majority of people coming to shows now are really not interested in buying. 
And maybe that's because, you know, the tickets are so expensive anyway. Like, you have to fork out so much to get into these shows as a punter. Certainly like MCM, where you, once you're in, surely you're just paying for the price of admission, you know, just to get in and be there. And, you know, people go and they take photos and, uh, you know, you want to see all the cosplayers and get snaps and selfies. And that's wonderful, but it gets harder and harder to call it a comic con. And I think that's where a lot of people are taking issue with it all now. And I think if you called it a pop culture show, I, I think you could do a lot to... You could do a lot to kind of alleviate some of the, I get ill will that might be kind of growing. But we we see, and we, Nick and I have spent a lot of time talking about this, and we think we're, I, I've always said that like in a few years, someone's going to write a really interesting kind of doctoral thesis about it. But the weird part is that we're noticing this new kind of demographic, and maybe like if you could profile a kind of new age, new wave kind of Comic-Con attendee, we get they're, they're kind of young. It's kind of like mid to early teens. They're dressed up to the nines as their favourite anime character. And it's maybe like their first show away from home. And they're just high on life. I mean, like, they're there. They are, they're, you know, they're seeing their friends and making new friends. It's like this weird, very alternate community where it's like for one day a year... Everyone can just go and wear whatever the hell they want. There's no judgment, or there shouldn't be on the face of it. There's no judgment. Everyone just has an amazing time. And then they go home and they don't sleep for a week because they're just so pumped on it all. And that's amazing. And I, I think, like, who who could take that away from them? Like, it's not my place or anyone's place to say what they can and can't enjoy. But, of course, these people are not there to buy comics. And if there is a flip side to all this, I guess the dark side, is that I wonder whether we're getting so referential as kind of like a pop community where everything we see is remixing, dressing up, playing, paying homage to something that there's kind of less creativity kind of rising to the fore. And I worry that like in five years time, you may get a whole generation of people who have done nothing but reference other stuff rather than make stuff. And you could get to a point where there's almost like a creative dearth in the near future. And then maybe creativity will rise before again and then we'll create new characters to to reference and love and maybe the cycle continues. Maybe this cycle has always been going on and I'm just some grumpy old sod who's arrived late to the party. But hey, like I said, there's no easy answers and this is just kind of like the pros and cons and the ups and downs and just the different various observations we've made in going to these shows. Because it's like they're having such a good time. Like who are we to moan about it really? And there's got to be a kind of happy medium to engage everyone, be they the people there to buy stories and the people there to attend the carnival. A great thing I noticed, at, like, I want to say like the first time we started going to MCM, was um, this idea that like you have thousands of kids, and it is like maybe their first time away from their parents, their first time away at a show, but they're too young to drink, or they're too young to, to party. And so, and if you've ever been to the Excel Centre, you know what I mean. It, the Excel Centre is this great big hulking aircraft hangar, this behemoth of a building. And then kind of, you go out one entrance, there's little steps now, there's like a, kind of like a little courtyard area, there's some greenery, uh, and then there's like a few over-expensive restaurants and bars where everyone ends up going to eat. But after a show, all the jaded comic creators who are exhausted, 
kind of world weary, just kind of you know dead around the eyes, following like this massive show. They just want to drink, like they they want to drink, they want food, they want to just kind of unwind for a bit. So they all hit the pub. So you get all these kind of people uh, just kind of putting the world to rights, getting drunk, and then across the road you have this kind of shanty town assembling of all these kids, all these um, kids dressed as anime characters, like all dressed up to the nines, but nowhere to go. You know, they're too young to drink legally. Uh, there's like this open air rave starts happening and we've walked back at like midnight or so to the hotel and there's still like roaming gangs of like uh, Naruto's and uh, One Punch Men just standing around like trash can fires and it's like diamond dogs. It's it's like this kind of weird glitter apocalypse. And I've often wondered what would happen if the apocalypse hit during a Comic-Con weekend and all the all all us nerds were left to repopulate the world. It'd be so bizarre. You'd get like the, the house of Naruto. The house of the Deadpool maid, which would probably be the devastating empire to King Sphema Planet. But yeah, that's MCM. I mean, I guess the kind of the odd Cisco show to MCM in that it takes place in the same venue is uh, London uh, London Super Comic Con, which uh, was actually my first ever show back in February 2012. It was its first year. We uh, it was a hell of a start actually because pardon me, I spent. 2011, going around shows, fact-finding, learning as much as I could. And then news was going around that this show, the London Super Comic Con, was starting up. It was the first one of its kind, and it was going to be in the Excel Center. So it was going to be like MCM, but it was going to be pure comics. That was the idea. It was like uh, big names coming across from the US, like big image, Marvel, DC people. Uh, Like Boom Studios were going to be there, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, and it would just be like, you know, kind of like true Comic-Con, like kind of like reclaiming it. And we, um, yeah, and, and so I booked a table. And that was my first ever show. I remember I'd seen the print proofs of Dying to Tell, the first after I think, book. I hadn't seen a proper book. They were delivered to me on the morning of the show. So the first time I saw the sh- uh, my book was when I was setting it up at the table. I had a couple of banners. I had a red tablecloth. I had a sandwich box to keep my float in, and I had a few book scans, and it was still to date one of the best shows I ever had, because Stan Lee was there, that was their big selling point, like, it it was sold as like, the last time Stan Lee will ever come to the UK, which was broken a few years later when he came to the UK again, but you know, like, it was the thought that counts. So all these people came to see Stan Lee in this great big aircraft hangar, and they didn't have a lot of stuff beyond that. Like, the hall was mostly empty. There was lots of tables, very spaced out, and great big open spaces where nothing was really going on. And we set up our table, and, yeah, people came and saw Stan Lee in their thousands. He was the big draw. But once they'd seen him, there was nothing else for them to do. So they were kind of like, oh, heck, what do we do now? Oh, might as well look around these... 12 tables that are here. Like, there really weren't many. I'm exaggerating, but, like, the rest of the show was tiny. And we sold really well because these people had nothing else to do. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to claim it was because the book was really good. But 
like, you know, we were brand new. They'd never seen us before. They had nothing to... It's not like we had a following or anything, but we sold well and it gave us this kind of amazing boost to carry on doing what we do. And we went again, like, um, for the next four or so years. And the next year it was bigger, a lot more comic people attended. And I know some people didn't have a good show the second time around, uh, but we did all right again. And I found myself defending it and people were saying, oh, it wasn't a very good show. And I was like, well, we did all right. And I, I think it's all right. I think if we give it like the time it needs, I think it will grow into a really good show. And their gimmick now, because they didn't have Scandley, it's like, how do you, when you start strong with Scandley, how do you follow that up? So they started saying that their idea going forward would be, um, you know, the famous people, the really big names would be mingled in, uh, mixed in equally with the indie people. So everyone would just have a table alphabetically, regardless of, you know, their fame or stature. And it was based on discovery. So the idea is that people would be looking around and they'd be looking to may mm, they'd be looking to, I don't know, maybe see Oh, this is terrible. I can't even think of like a famous person now. Um they want to meet Jim Lee. Jim Lee's my go to famous person. They want to meet Jim Lee. And oh, he's next to I don't know, John Locke or something like that. That that loser. And it's like, hey, so here's a famous person. Who the hell are you? And the idea was that I think it would all cross, like all this goodwill would feed into each other and we'd all support each other. And it was good. I mean, we did this for a couple of years and it was, it was enjoyable. It was. And um, every year, despite people maybe being a little unhappy and saying, oh, it's not quite as good as MCM, I'd always defend it. And, and the counter argument was always, it's about comics. Like it's pure comics. So happy days. I mean, and then, I don't know, like, Stuff, there was some odd, we started to get some odd vibes from it. Like, a pr- one in the plus column was the staff were always incredibly helpful. Like, just some of the most lovely helpers you could imagine. And they'd even, they'd assign like one person per aisle to make sure everyone was happy. You know, if you needed extra chairs, they'd find them. If you needed water, they'd bring water over. It was lovely. A real negative was the security firm they hired was so aggressive. You know, you get over Tannoy, it'd go like, uh, you know, attention, attention everyone, uh, it's 5pm, the show is now finished, uh, can all punters please leave the hall? So all the, you know, all the kind of delegate, you know, what's the word, punters, yeah, I guess, everyone starts leaving. And all the um, exhibitors, us, start shutting down. We start kind of just folding up our tables and stuff and covering stuff up for the night, or if it's on a Sunday, you know, putting stuff into boxes. And then kind of out of the shadows, these, you know, black-suited security guys suddenly turn up. They've all got, like, Matrix headphones in, uh, all wearing those kind of bomber jackets. And they're really aggressive, and they're coming over saying, please leave, you know, hey, don't dally, you have to leave. And we're like, hey, we're exhibitors. And we're like, don't care, don't know, what does that mean? What's a comic? I don't know, get out. And it's a recurring problem where, like, these events hire like a third party security firm. They're not affiliated with the Comic Con. They're not affiliated with the Excel Center. They're just there to keep the peace and keep people moving. And no one has explained to them the difference between a guest, an exhibitor, and a punter. And they're just, you know, trying to kick you out. It's really, I mean, really bad. Like, it, we notice it at a lot of shows, but London Super Comic Con in particular, whatever that firm were, they were very obnoxious and very kind of in your face and just wouldn't listen to reason and would keep kind of haranguing you to get out. And I know Lucy got quite angry with them because they were just jostling us. And, 
Yeah, and I guess that leads us up to like last year. So we went to London Super Comic Con. Uh, wait, twenty sixteen? Yeah, I guess we did go this year. I guess it was back in March or February. I can't even remember. And I wasn't feeling too well at the time. See, previous episodes, so it wasn't a great show anyway in terms of my health. And I think Lucy and I left early on the Sunday because I was feeling so rotten. But it wasn't a good show. It was, um, I don't know, just not well attended. Uh, not, I don't know, just no interest. And I guess you can't, I guess it's not the fault of the organisers, maybe, if people don't turn up. But you think you're going to what is kind of like an MCM venue. You, you expect, you hope things will be on a par with MCM. And this is a big difference. Like, I mean, you can... There's a lot of criticisms to be levelled at MCM, I think, but they get people through the door. And there's a lot of people there to have a good time, and it's a good vibe. And, you know, that feeds down into the creators, like I said earlier. But, you know, London Super Comic Con, there just wasn't anything going on. And I know people were happy. There were, there were some kind of comics, um, very pure comic people who were saying, this is great, it's all about comics, I can find what I want. I can meet the people I want to meet. But as an exhibitor... It just wasn't worth your time. I was thinking, why are we here? And the biggest sticking point, I think, is that every year the price of a table had gone up. Uh, every year it got more expensive. And I may need to, like, oh, I don't know, like look back into my records and try and work out exactly when this trend started and what it was originally. But I know there was a massive hike, price hike between 2015 and 2016. And 2016 was quite expensive. And it went from, well, look, if you wanted a table, it was £110 for the table itself. £30 for a second exhibitor pass. They didn't even give you two exhibitor passes per table. And then £10 for a second chair. Or £10 for a chair, come to think of it. I think, yeah, I don't think they gave you any chairs. And it was like, oh, good grief. Like, this is this is outrageous. They're milking us for cash. It's only when MCM will give you these great big discounted tables just to make it easier for you if you're in the comic village. And I remember emailing the organisers or trying to get through to the organisers. Um, I got as far as one of their kind of promotional people. And I, I, I said, look, can you please pass this on? I mean, let's be honest, no one's going to listen. But I wrote like a, I wrote a letter saying, you know, please be aware, yours is now the most expensive show in the UK to attend. And that's true. And I, I we have the kind of figures from the other shows we've been to. And Prior to that, the, the most expensive show I'd ever been to was Kapow, Mark Miller's odd little venture in uh, Islington, where that was 150 quid for a table. And that was like, and we sold all right, you know, but still very expensive to get in. And also another complaint about Kapow was that if you weren't famous, you, you were pretty much treated like dirt, dirt under their shoe, really. Like you were just... You know, all the indie creators were just kind of shoved in the corner and were not thought about. I always remember being slightly bugged by the fact that they had all these prom promotional photos afterwards showing everyone having a good time. And not a single photo was of the indie section. Not a single person I recognised. And it was all just the big headline stuff like uh, the luchadors and Jonathan Ross in the wrestling ring. And it was, you know, it's like, you don't have to. It's your company. You can do whatever you want. But... You'd think if you're running a UK comic convention, you have a bit of you have a bit of an obligation to maybe support UK comics. I don't know, maybe maybe that's just me. But yeah, and so 
you kind of saw London Super Comic Con going that same way. So I wrote a letter to them saying, the organisers saying, I hope you realise just how expensive your show has become and how you might be pricing people out of the show. And of course, we never heard anything back because, you know, why would they? You know, I'm just some, I'm just an idiot. They, they have no, you know, they're not going to reply to me. But now the news this year is, I mean, I was already, we were already discussing not going next year because it just wasn't worth our time. And now the news out this year is that they are moving venue. So clearly they can't afford the Excel Centre anymore. And they're now going to Islington, to the site of the former Kapow. And the other news coming out is that it's moving to August rather than March, which I think means it clashes with the Melksham Comic-Con. And sorry, I mean, we just have too much of a connection to Melksham. I don't think we're going to pass that up to go to London Super Comic-Con. And and yeah, and but it's also it's moving into the same venue that Kapow was in which was already an expensive show. But apparently they can't afford... Like, why would you leave the Excel Centre? That's what I don't know. It's like, the Excel Centre is a pretty... Yeah, it's a little far out, but it's also like the number one convention centre in the UK. Like, you'd think you'd want to be there. So I'm thinking, can they not afford that? Because 2016 was not a good year, so they're like, do we have to go somewhere a bit cheaper, I guess? But at the same time, the prices were already going up. It doesn't... It doesn't quite... I can't quite square that circle in my head. So we're we're probably not going to be able to go if it clashes with Melksham, but we're reserving judgment until we see how much the tickets are because maybe I'm being cynical, but I have a sneaking suspicion that they're going to be pricey because I don't think they're getting enough people through the door because I don't think they have a unique selling point to draw people in anymore. Stanley was a one-off thing. And I think they're making their money up by charging... The exhibitors and charging them quite heavily, which is how it was going before. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's hard making these comics. You know, you've got to you've got to look for savings wherever you can. It's not an easy industry. And the other news is that they are they're doing away with their sorting tables alphabetically. So now the indie people are going to be in one room, and the famous people are going to be in another room. And that's already ringing alarm bells. I know a few people have been, I, I know a few people who I trust have been to shows where that's happened before. And the indie creators have always felt like an afterthought. They've just been kind of scuffed in the back. And, you know, the biggest hurdle facing any indie creator is just being discovered. You know, because you don't have the market reach that Marvel or DC have. And, you know, if people come and, discover your table or your book and they talk to you and they learn about your story you know they might like it they might buy it but if they don't know you exist that's never going to happen and it's never going to happen if we're kind of shoved in the back I mean I, I we thankfully we dodged a bullet but I remember people talking about some disastrous Cardiff show where all the indie people were shoved in some back room which was only accessible through some oh good grief what was it like some fire escape or something and no one no one came that way because why would they? And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you've got to... Maybe I'm wrong and I'm very happy to be proved wrong. I just... The vibe we were getting is that kind of indie comic creators were nothing but like money bags or, you know, just cash cows to be milked. And once we're in the door and we've got a table, it's your fault if no one turns up and you don't sell anything. So I don't know. We've got to be selective. And I think... Uh, 
that's really the message we've been learning the past few years because we've been we've been like going hitting as many shows as we can i mean i thought this was going to be quite a light year but we actually look back at it and i think we've done like 11 shows this year and it's wonderful like any show we go to where we get to meet people you know sell some books spread the good word that's wonderful that's great but not all shows are created equal and i think you've got to be very careful and selective about the shows you go to because you know, you can't just keep throwing money at a problem and hope it fixes itself. I'd rather go to two really good shows than go to 10 mediocre shows and just cripple myself with the expenses. So yeah, there we go. That's John's ill-informed, hateful opinions on shows and comic shows. But yeah, so we have now, anyway, incredibly meandering. I didn't know where this this podcast was going to go, but there we go. I've ended up talking about conventions. I hope it's proved useful in some way, um, we are, we're done now for the year. So it's all our shows done. The next one will be True Believers in February. And we're already talking now about just rebranding a lot of the stuff on our table and finding new ways to make it interesting and uh, fresh. Uh, We'll have a new After I Think book out, hopefully, hopefully, he said, in the first quarter of next year, which is very business speak, but I know we have a lot of other commitments on and we're aiming for March, but it's kind of dependent on a few other things falling into place. So need to get cracking on finishing that off. But I think it'll be a good opportunity to refresh some of the displays, uh, refresh the tablecloth, you know, just think about a way of making all our books look really kind of popping on the table. And I've got a grand scheme to make a, a kind of a model of the Empyrean to have on the table. And I have ridiculous plans for that. And because I need a hobby which isn't writing at a flipping computer or shooting things on Overwatch, I'm thinking a bit of arts and crafts over the new year might be good. Plus, at Birmingham yesterday, we just put up the After I Think banner and it sheared off. So, uh, you know, these things are only 25 quid on on, eBay. They are not made to last forever. This is the first one we've had which has actually just torn itself apart. So, yeah, an excuse to rebrand kind of refresh and then face the new year with, I don't know, fresh energy and hopefully a brand new book to kick ass. So yeah, thanks uh, for listening, guys. I hope you've enjoyed your morning coffee and this little waffle of mine, and I will see you in two weeks' time. Goodbye. This podcast, and others like it, is made possible thanks to our wonderful backers on Patreon. To support Big Punch Studios as we make comics like Afterlife Thinking Seven String, games like Sandwich Masters, and podcasts like the one you've just been listening to, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash Big Punch Studios. For just $5 a month, not only will you help make everything we do a reality, but we'll also send you four copies of Big Punch magazine a year. That's over 180 full-colour pages of comic action, featuring Cuckoo's, Orb, 99 Swords and Catamarang, delivered straight to your door. This has been a Big Punch Studios production. For all things Big Punch, be sure to head on over to www.bigpunchstudios.com. 